O great God in heaven, creator and ruler over all, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, an eternal communion of love, giver of every good and perfect gift, full of wisdom, truth, and love, acting in righteousness, slow to anger, abounding in mercy, keeping covenant to a thousand generations. O Lord, we have come before you today as people who have been baptized into your name, washed and renewed and ordained as your royal priests. We are coming to learn truth from your word, truth about how you have saved us and how you call us to live as your people. And we come to be fed at your table so we can know our oneness with Christ Jesus, the eternal word made flesh, the son of the father who makes us sons of God as well. We come to your table to feast upon Christ's body and blood. On this day, O God, we commemorate the royal procession of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Father, may we learn from his humility. May we be amazed by how he repurposes kingly power for service. May we celebrate the King of Kings who came to bleed and die to save his bride. O God, we give you glory and praise. We honor you, we thank you, and we adore you. This we pray, O Heavenly Father, in the name of your Son and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Our sermon text is the gospel reading that you've just heard. And I want to highlight just one line from verse 5. Behold, your King is coming. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent King Jesus to be our Savior, to rescue daughter Zion, to bring in his kingdom, to gather us together, and to gather together people from all nations of the earth. As we look at this passage this morning, we pray that you would teach us what it means to be subjects of this kingdom. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Behold, your king comes. It's the theme, the message of Palm Sunday. Jesus comes as king. Where does he come from? He begins his procession at the Mount of Olives. This might seem natural to us. We think of Jesus being on the Mount of Olives frequently. But in fact, this is the first time that he's been there in Matthew's Gospel. From the time that he comes to the Mount of Olives before his procession into Jerusalem and throughout the remaining week of his life, he's on the Mount of Olives repeatedly, but he hasn't been there before. He starts his procession from the Mount of Olives. Later on, he's going to go to the Mount of Olives after eating a meal with his disciples, the Last Supper in Jerusalem. On the Mount of Olives, he's going to enter a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of the Olive Press. And there he's going to pray to his father. Jesus is going to sit on the Mount of Olives and he's going to deliver a lengthy judgment against Jerusalem. Jesus was probably crucified on the Mount of Olives. He hasn't been there before, but in the last week of his life, he makes the Mount of Olives his base of operation. Why would he do that? Why does he begin his procession as king from the Mount of Olives? To understand that, we have to know something about the way that olives were symbolized in the temple. 
everything in the temple of Solomon, everything in Herod's temple, was anointed with olive oil. The entire temple was like an olive grove, an olive tree. It was like a lampstand. The temple was supposed to be a light on a hill, a city on a hill beaming its light out to the nations. And within the temple, in particular, the most holy place was a place associated with anointing and with oil. The wood of the doors that uh, divided the holy place from the inner sanctuary, the most holy place in the temple, were made of oil wood. There were two cherubim flanking the Ark of the Covenant, Yahweh's throne in Solomon's temple. And those two cherubim on either side of Yahweh's throne were also made of oil wood. They are anointed ones. The entire temple is like a lampstand filled with oil, shining its light to the nations. And particularly the most holy place, the inner sanctuary, the place where Yahweh is enthroned, is an anointed place. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives to begin his procession into Jerusalem. He goes to commune with his father and meet with his father on the Mount of Olives. He sits down and pronounces a judgment against Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. He has turned the Mount of Olives into a new most holy place. This is the new anointed place, the new inner sanctuary where Jesus does those things that Yahweh would do on the, uh, from the inner sanctuary. In fact, his whole progression from the Mount of Olives down through the Kidron Valley into Jerusalem is like a procession from the inside of the temple to the courts. He begins in an olive grove on the Mount of Olives. He passes through the Kidron Valley and then he comes into the city over palm branches and other branches. If Yahweh were leaving his throne in the most holy place and processing out through the holy place, through the nave of the temple, he would be passing through a nave that was carved with palm trees. He would be going through a palm grove as he went out into the court. That's what Jesus does. Jesus starts in this new Holy of Holies, the Mount of Olives. He processes through palm branches, through palm trees, and ends his procession in the temple courts. An observer on Palm Sunday wouldn't think that Jesus was coming out of the temple. An observer would think he's coming into the temple. But Jesus has begun to turn things inside out. The most holy place has moved outside. The most holy place, the place where Yahweh was enthroned, has become the place where Jesus is going to suffer and sweat blood before his Father. It's going to become the place where his throne is not a golden throne with cherubim flanking him, but a cross flanked by two brigands, two revolutionaries, two thieves. That, outs- that, that holy place outside the gate is going to become the new holy place. That's where Jesus begins his procession. That's where Jesus comes from. Behold, your king comes. How does he come? He comes on a donkey. In fact, it tells us that we have two donkeys that Jesus requisitions from a nearby village. Jesus comes on donkeys that are not even his own donkeys. Jesus comes as the king... But it doesn't look like he's coming as a king, as Pastor Lusk said before the service. He's redefining what kingship means. If a conquering king would come into a city, he would come on his war horse. He would come with his soldiers. A Roman emperor coming in triumph will not be sitting on a donkey. 
Donkeys weren't as despised in ancient Israel as we think of them. Donkeys were royal animals in ancient Israel. The first prophecy we have about the tribe of Judah becoming the royal tribe back in Genesis 49 describes the king, the descendant of Judah, with a scepter as a ruler, but also with a donkey that he ties to a vine as a sign of the abundance of the rain that he's going to bring. We have judges who ride on donkeys. Absalom rides a donkey into battle. Solomon rides a mule to his coronation. Donkeys are not as despised creatures as we think of them today. For ancient Israelites, they would have been royal animals of a sword. But it is a deliberate choice on Jesus' part to process into Jerusalem as the king, coming out from his new most holy place, processing on a donkey and not on a war horse, not displaying traditional means of power, but coming as a humble king, gentle and meek. Jesus enacts a fulfillment of prophecy here. All the way through the gospel story, especially in Matthew, we learn that Jesus, the events of Jesus' life again and again fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Usually that's inadvertent. Usually it's circumstantial things that happen that Jesus experiences that fulfill prophecy. He didn't make a choice to leave Israel and go to Egypt when he was an infant. His parents took him, and yet that fulfilled a prophecy from Hosea. He didn't intend for the children around Bethlehem to be slaughtered as Herod slaughtered them, and yet that fulfills a prophecy from Jeremiah. In this case, though, Jesus deliberately enacts a prophecy. He decides he's going to come into Jerusalem like the king described in Zechariah 9. The Zechariah 9, who is the king in Zechariah 9, who is a conquering king, who starts in the far north of the land and conquers all the way to the south, all the way to Jerusalem. But by the time he gets to Jerusalem, he enters Jerusalem not as a conqueror, but one who makes peace. He comes as a prince of peace. He comes announcing peace. Jesus fulfills that prophecy. Jesus fulfills that kind of kingship. But he is redefining what it means to be king. He comes and unveils his messianic mission. Throughout the gospel, Jesus has been veiling himself. He's been hiding his identity as the Messiah. He heals people and tells them not to tell anyone about what they've experienced. He does some great miracle, but he tells people to be quiet. He casts out a demon, but he tells the demons not to testify about him. Now Jesus has chosen the time and the place and the manner in which he's going to reveal himself as king. And he chooses to do it not on a great war stallion, not with a company of heroes, but rather coming as a meek and humble king riding on a donkey. It's not that Jesus is coming in weakness. Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah, the prophecy of a conquering king. He is coming to rescue daughter Zion. But he's going to rescue daughter Zion not by destroying his enemies, but by submitting himself to his enemies on the cross. Behold, your king comes. What does he come to do? We can get several clues from the way the crowd reacts to Jesus, from what Jesus himself does, and finally from the way the children react to Jesus. Jesus is coming out of his new most holy place on the Mount of Olives. 
He's processing down to his city to inspect it. He's processing toward the temple courts. He comes as the king, as a king of humility and peace. What is he coming to do? He is coming to receive the homage of the people of Jerusalem. And they show him homage. When the king comes, they could bow themselves down along the way. These people go one step further. And they take off their garments, which represent their status themselves. And they throw their garments down and make a carpet before Jesus. So his donkey can ride over the carpet. That's a kind of sartorial homage. They pay homage to Jesus with their clothing. They bow down to him by throwing their clothes before Jesus. They recognize Jesus as king. He's coming to claim his capital city. He's coming to uh, appear before his subjects and to demand the homage of his subjects. But there's a twist here. The only time this happens in the Old Testament, the only time people take off their robes and throw them before a king... The only time they ever make a red carpet, as it were, of their own clothing is when Jehu becomes king. You might remember Jehu. Jehu was anointed by the Lord in order to destroy the house of Ahab. Ahab and Jezebel had, uh, had uh, conducted a reign of terror, persecuting prophets, killing prophets, chasing prophets into caves. Ahab promoted not just the worship of golden calves, but the worship of Baal. He had built a temple for Baal in the capital city of the northern kingdom. And eventually the Lord said, enough is enough. I'm going to turn things upside down, overthrow Ahab and his house. And my agent for doing that will be Jehu. Jehu was a commander of the Israelite army working under Ahab, Ahab's son. And he... Uh, He uh, was anointed king by a prophet, and his soldiers acknowledged him and paid homage to him as king by taking off their robes and throwing them on the ground in front of them and proclaiming, Jehu is king, long live the king. Jesus comes to Jerusalem with gentleness. Jesus comes to Jerusalem in humility. But Jesus comes to Jerusalem to turn things upside down just as much as Jehu did. Jehu overturned the uh, dynasty of Ahab with Ahab's own tools. Ahab had conducted his reign of terror with the sword, and Jehu killed many people with his sword and with the swords of his men. Jesus is going to turn things upside down even more radically than that. He is going to overturn Jerusalem and its elites. He is going to bring a revolution in Israel. Those who are cast down are going to be elevated, and those who are in high places are going to be cast down. No wonder, Matthew tells us, that Jerusalem is stirred by his coming. The last time Jerusalem was stirred was when the three wise men came, the three magi came, looking for the king of the Jews. Herod was upset. Herod was troubled by the appearance of these wise men. And Jerusalem is troubled, rightly so, Because Jesus comes as a king, as a new Jehu, to turn the world upside down. They not only throw, the people not only throw their robes before Jesus, but they cut down branches from the trees. John tells us that they put down palm branches in particular. This might be a way of hailing a king as he's coming in, the the palm of victory that we just sang about 
in one of our hymns this morning. But it also alludes to a number of stories from the Old Testament, a number of episodes and settings from the Old Testament. You might remember when, G- when David went out to fight against the Philistines, he was told to wait until he heard the stirring of the wind in the tops of the trees, and then he would know that the Lord was going out over the trees in front of him. The Lord was going to lead David into battle by walking over the trees. Jesus isn't floating in the air here. But Jesus is riding over the trees as the divine warrior, as God's agent to overturn Israel and to bring in a new kind of kingdom. The people throw down palm branches. Jesus has just been in the city of palms, Jericho. He's just healed a blind man, two blind men in Jericho, the city of palms. And now the people turn Jerusalem into a city of palms, throwing the palm branches before him. They turn Jerusalem into a Jericho, the city that will be conquered, the city that will be torn down, the cities whose walls will be thrown down by this king, this king who comes in humility. The people greet him with part of Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a psalm of celebration of a king. It's a psalm of celebration of the rebuilding of a temple. And Jesus is indeed coming to rebuild a temple. But before he rebuilds a temple, he's going to throw down the old one. And he's going to become the cornerstone of a new temple. That's also in Psalm 118. The crowd sing only part of it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Later, this, later in this week, Jesus will quote the other part of it. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus himself is going to be the cornerstone of a new temple. He goes into the temple itself, and in the temple he enacts a temple destruction. He interrupts this, the sacrificial uh, rites of, the Jerusalem's, of Jerusalem's temple. He goes in and casts out the money changers, the money changers who would have provided the uh, pre-inspected animals for people who wanted to offer a sacrifice. He interrupts that trade, and by interrupting that trade in sacrificial animals, he interrupts the sacrificial system itself. It's a pre-enactment of a coming judgment against the temple. The people hail him as a king who's going to build a temple, Jesus is going to build a temple, but his actions show us that he's going to build a temple by tearing down this other one, the old one that's become a den of thieves instead of a house of prayer. The king comes. He comes in order to triumph over his people, to receive their homage. He comes as the holy warrior to overturn Israel. He comes as the temple builder who's going to build a new kind of temple of living stones with himself as the chief cornerstone. He comes to do all this and the people greet him with celebration and especially the children. This, at the end of this passage, I think we have a particular sign of the kind of kingdom that Jesus is coming to establish. Jesus is coming as king. Who are the subjects, the proper subjects of his kingdom? The Pharisees would have thought themselves to be the proper subjects of the new kingdom of God that's coming. After all, they're the pure ones. They're the law-abiding ones. When God comes, when the king comes, they should be the ones that are the chief subjects of his kingdom. The priests and the scribes think that they should be the ones who are the leaders in his kingdom. 
But Jesus has been saying throughout the gospel, and he says again here, that his kingdom turns the kingdoms of this world upside down. Place, takes the high, high from their high places and throws them and exalts the humble. The children in particular greet him with hosannas because the children are the ones who know how to receive this kind of king. They receive him as they should. They receive him with hosannas. They receive him with praise. Your king comes. It's the message of Palm Sunday, but it's not just the message of Palm Sunday. Your king comes is, in a sense, the history of the world. God created the world, placed Adam and Eve in the garden, told Adam not to eat from the forbidden fruit. Adam did. And then God made an appearance. Your king comes. He made an appearance as judge. He made an appearance to assess and to condemn and to curse the land and the ground and Adam and Eve and to cast them out of the garden. God came as king again in Egypt to rescue his people and to lead them out of Egypt into a land that he had provided for them. He came again and again throughout the history of Israel's monarchy in the form of reforming kings and prophets who were persecuted for their prophecies. He came in the flesh. He came in the flesh to die. He came in order to go to the grave. He comes again out of the grave. That's the good news of the gospel is that your king comes. It's also the bad news of the gospel. Because some people don't want to receive this king. Nobody really wants to stand before a king who's doing an inspection. Nobody wants that kind of scrutiny. Adam didn't want that kind of scrutiny. When he knew that the Lord was coming to him, when he knew the king was coming, he didn't go out with a palm branch to greet him. He found fig branches, clothed himself, and hid. It's not natural for us to go out and greet this king. This king brings good news, but he brings good news only by building on the bad news. That's the history of the world, according to the Bible. It's also the history of your life. Your king comes and your king keeps coming again and again. Your king comes in all the minor upheavals and disasters of life. When Jesus comes to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he comes to turn things inside out and upside down. To make the inner sanctuary an outer sanctuary. To take it outside the gates. And to turn the inner sanctuary into an unclean thing. He comes to throw down the high and to lift up the low. Jesus comes in order to turn worlds upside down. And when he comes to you, he comes to turn your world upside down. What are you going to do? Are you going to hide? Are you going to find some fig leaves? Or are you going to greet him at his coming? Are you going to celebrate his coming? Are you going to join the children's choir that greets Jesus as he comes as king? Your king comes in all the minor and major difficulties and disasters of your life. He comes as king. He comes for you to pay homage to him, to rejoice even when he comes with disaster and pain and difficulty. To greet him when he comes to shatter your world and to turn it upside down. Jesus wants you to rejoice also 
in that. And what we're doing here every week at church is training ourselves to be part of that children's choir that knows how to greet the coming king. Every week we sing the song of Palm Sunday. Every week we sing, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We sing that because we really believe that the king comes to us every week here to speak to us, to feed us at his table, to put us under review, to test us. Every week we appear before him in order to be inspected in order to be sifted and assessed and judged? Do we greet him with rejoicing? Or do we find a cave to hide in? Do we find fig leaves to cover cover ourselves? Every week in this worship service, the liturgy is designed to teach you to rejoice at the king's coming, not only here, but in all the painful ways that the king comes in your life. Palm Sunday is a call to carry out the song of Palm Sunday, to sing the song of Palm Sunday every day, every time the King comes. Palm Sunday is an invitation, a call to join the children's choir, to sing, Behold, your King comes. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you that Jesus comes as our King. We thank you that he comes to conquer. We thank you that he comes to turn the world upside down, to put it right side up. We thank you even when he comes to turn our worlds upside down. We pray that you would give us great faith so that we would greet his coming with rejoicing, that you would make us like little children who sing at the coming of the King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.